Praise God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at verse 2 this morning. Through hopefully verse 7. For those of you who are guests, we try to cover one book a year. If it's a smaller book of the Bible, we try to cover two. Uh, this year, the Lord's taken us to 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter. Uh, second inspired preserved letter, should I say. There's three total to the Corinthian church, but this is the second letter that's been kept for us, for our learning uh, by the Lord. And um, this morning, we're going to look at verses 2 through 7 of chapter 7. So read with me, if you would, as we begin. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, and he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Father in heaven, help us to understand how your grace maintenances human relationships in the local church this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, that's our focus. Christian relationships in the church are founded and grown all by God's grace. That's the simple proposition for our whole sermon. Christian relationships in the church are founded and grown all by the grace of God. Paul, for the rest of chapter 7, really, folks, is not going to be um, dealing with anything deeply theological or doctrinal. The rest of chapter 7 is all practical. And it's all how we get along. How we started in Christ and how we get along in Christ. As people in his church. And this morning we're going to take this text and divide it up into three simple sections and we're going to talk about the foundation of quality relationships in the church. The foundation of quality relationships in the church and then we're going to look at the fervor, right, the passion of those relationships and then we're going to conclude with the function of those relationships and we're going to find out all three points are underpinned by supernatural grace. In other words, we don't get along at all without the grace of Christ and without the grace of growing in Christ likeness. Right? That's not just some cliche statements. I think, I think we understand the nature of what I'm saying and what Paul's going to say here. Like, we don't get along at all. Like, we don't even have a relationship together without the person of Christ, without a relationship with the person of Christ, and without growing in grace in Christ's likeness. 
So the opposite of that could be true. If we don't truly know Christ, we're probably not going to get along. And if we do know Christ and we're not growing in Christ's likeness by the same grace that saved us, we're probably going to struggle in our relationship. So Christians who struggle in their relationships inside the local church, logically then, by what Paul's going to say here, have either misunderstood the influence of how God's grace works in their life to maintenance relationships, or they've just decided to set it aside. If Christians in a local church don't get along, they've forgotten the inevitable purpose of grace to develop their growth together in Christ's likeness. And it really is that simple, right? I praise God for a church like Grace because, you know, it, it, it's very, very rare that we come across people that just don't love, love each other and don't want to get along, right? And if we struggle, we even work hard by God's grace to, to restore, right? And to, to get back with each other and to, and to continue to function and growth in Christ's likeness together. But that was, not, that was not what was happening in Corinth. But if we're going to be true to the text, we've got to understand that, that this is what Paul's saying. That this church had had its relationship with Christ upended because of the influence of false unbelief among them. And therefore, their relationship with Paul struggled. So if we misunderstand grace and salvation or growth and grace in likeness, then, then we're going to struggle with each other. And Paul's saying here, listen, it's, that's not how it functions. And, and he's, he's going to, we've already read it, he's going to outline for us here how his restoration to a relationship with the people of Corinth was all by God's grace. And uh, it's going to be a beautiful journey for us here this morning. And I trust we're able to conclude this by the time we're supposed to finish. So we could confidently say if relationships among us struggle, we could conclude with certainty there is a measure of how capable God's grace is in maintaining relationships we don't yet fully understand. Relationships are severed for many reasons. You are aware of many of those reasons just with relationships that have been given to us both in the Old and the New Testament, aren't we? Christian relationships are often severed but always given a pathway to restoration. That pathway is only of grace. Think of it. It's quite simple. We were all separated from God because of our sin. Then the grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ to bring us back to God by the sacrifice of himself for our sin. That's all of God's grace. We would all agree. That it's completely safe to assume that the grace of God that brought us back into a right relationship with him is then the same grace that keeps us in a right relationship with each other. Remember, in Corinth, there were two significant factors that severed Paul's relationship with the church there. The sinful activity of the people that Paul addressed in his first letter, that's 1 Corinthians, that severe letter. And then, as I just stated earlier, the religious unbelief that had infiltrated the church, that had turned the people who were saved against Paul that brought the message of saving faith to them in the first place. Both unconfessed sin, the seeds of unbelief that has yet to be personally um, fully experienced, thank God, in this church, but had fully been experienced in the Corinthian church. Both of those coupled together seek to upend meaningful relationships in Christ. 
So for the remainder of chapter 7, this is the focus, relationships. A misappropriation of grace by the saved in Corinth had affected their relationship with Paul, and a misuse of grace by the religious ones among them had become the seed of relationship division as well. But Paul was determined to allow the grace in Christ that had founded their relationship to maintenance the same. He knew that healthy relationships in the church were vital and absolutely necessary for the progress of the gospel. So for Paul here, we've got to jump before chapter 7 to understand his purpose of the progress of the gospel so that we, we don't just get stuck in relationship restoration and develop here, development here. The purpose for this little parenthesis, if you will, on relationship development at this point of the, of the letter was to let the people know, look, it's good to have strong relationships in the church. Why? So that we can work together in the promotion of the gospel. Satan's targets not exclusively on your back to ruin your walk with the Lord. He would love to ruin your walk with him so you weren't ruin your walk with another believer in the church. So then if that becomes a domino effect in any local church or in any segment of a local church, then Satan knows, look, the gospel's not going to go forward from that place in a spirit-filled manner. So Satan wins. Because the chief enemy of the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Satan. And if he can use broken relationships to keep that progress from going forward, then, then uh, he's happy. So Paul's pretty determined here, and we're going to see that here with the language that he uses. Right? So, verse 2, the foundation. The foundation of good relationships. He says here, make room for us. We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. He gives one present active imperative and then he uses three, so he gives one command, and then he gives three statements reminding them of his original entrance to Corinth when he preached Christ. So this is not an option. Relationship restoration is always the option on the table because God's grace should always be operative in a believer's life to make sure it happens. So that's the foundation of the command. He's not saying make room for us in your hearts has been added by English translators. Make room for us, he's saying. Not because I want you to like me and I want to like you. Not leaving the, the offended an option to say, well, you offended me, even though Paul never really had. They had been persuaded by unbelief that he had. You offended me, and so I've got to protect myself. I've got to draw my own lines. I've got to set up my own barriers. Uh, God's called me to protect myself from, your, from yourself, <laughs> from you. From my person, from your person. Once wounded, always wounded. Even if it's falsely wounded. And Paul says, you know what? Whether falsely wounded or truly wounded, he says, make room in your hearts for us. Make room for us. And it's a command. This is not something that a believer is able to think twice about. Why? Because of grace. The grace of God. Only the grace of God takes 
in a human heart and mind an irreparable relationship to cause it to be repaired. And that's what Paul's saying here. Why? Because Paul had a gospel history with these folks. And that history was a gospel of grace. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5? At least three times since we started this book study, we've referenced those verses. It's Paul's uh, reminding them of his motive and his method and his message of his first entrance to them. Remember, he said, I came to you originally, not with enticing words of man's wisdom. I wasn't a smooth talker. I wasn't a self-help coach. I wasn't a life coach. I didn't come to you with man's philosophy or human wisdom, but I came to you with the wisdom of God, remember, in the demonstration of the spirit and power of the Holy Spirit, preaching unto you a very exclusive message. I preached unto you Jesus Christ and him crucified only. That's it. So that text in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he kind of explicates along three lines here in relationship to his methodology, his motive, his message, but here's his methodology. He says, we didn't wrong anyone. Paul had been accused of financially exploiting the Corinthian believers, but there was no evidence of this, and he knew it. The charges were groundless. He says, we corrupted nobody, in verse 2. This is a relationship to his messaging since the first time you met him. I discerned, as we've already said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said, we took advantage of nobody. Paul had never used his status as an apostle to gain leadership ground right, or popularity status among the church. The language of all three statements should show us that from the time Paul first met them until the time he writes this letter, that he remained consistent with these relationship convictions because the gospel of grace demands it. The gospel of grace had transformed his heart, and he knew it had transformed theirs also. Therefore, again, that same grace underpins the development of relationships in the church according to these convictions. It's all of God's grace. So that's the foundation. That's the foundation. Character of an individual's life and that character that's only brought about by supernatural grace. Okay. Someone who's governed by the Spirit will never seek to take advantage of anybody. They wouldn't be intending to wrong anybody, and they certainly wouldn't be inclined to corrupt anybody. God changes who we are and the way we live because of a message that he brought to our hearts about knowing Christ and being born again by the Spirit of God in knowing him. And Paul says, listen, this is the foundation that's been consistent and you've known it and you've seen it. And by the way, we're gonna find out they actually responded to it as well. So what's the fervor of right relationships within the local church? Verses three and four that we've already read describes for us this fervency. There are staples in human relationships. I understand that. Always saying I love you when we separate, right? You hear that at funerals often of testimony of the deceased, right? 
one thing I loved about my mom or one thing I always loved about my dad or my son or my daughter is they would never leave my presence without telling me they love me. Right? Texting or writing notes of encouragement on a consistent basis do a lot to maintenance relationships. Hey, you used to watch the Waltons? What was a staple of their relationship? I've mentioned this before, right? For those of you who are under 40, Google the Waltons on YouTube or whatever, search and, and just watch a few episodes. Every episode ended the same way. Do you remember? Everyone, room to room. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Mary Ellen. Good night, Pa. Good night, Ma. Remember that? It was a staple of their home. And my goodness, you always wanted to watch to the end of every episode knowing what was going to happen, right? Because it was just good. <laughs> All the kids are saying, you're nuts, man. That's just... <laughs> For my dad, he had many ways to show my mom he loved her. Every Easter and every Mother's Day, we kids knew that it was fashionable and therefore appropriate for my mom to get a flower corsage for each of those special days. Those are staples to human relationship, among many, many others. Paul had the staple of God's grace that we are to learn from that developed his relationships with the Corinthians. And here are some of the phrases that describe how grace treats believers in the church who have also been changed and grown by the same grace. He said, I do not speak to condemn you. I do not speak to condemn you. Condemn you. No one can be or should be condemned when they've been set free by the exclusive grace of God in Christ. Absolutely nobody. No matter how much we believe someone has harmed us or spoken ill of us, no matter how hard someone has worked to separate their relationship from us, Paul says here, I won't condemn any of you. Because if I condemn you, I condemn Christ, who has promised never to condemn me. And with great fervency, he says, I refuse. And all of us drawing the circle around ourselves, regardless of how relationships might go awry from time to time. We love each other in Christ. And since there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, we seek to condemn nobody who is of the same stature. He said, for I have said before that you are in our hearts. Any relationship influenced by grace is going to be maintained by prayer and the word. It will enjoy the memory of Christian fellowship and gospel ministry that was done together and enjoyed together. And then he says here a very unique statement. To die together and to live together. The Corinthian mind would have immediately recognized that Paul had taken a common phrase used often in that part of the first century in that culture and reversed it. If you were friends for life in a Corinthian first century culture, you would express your loyalty to one another by saying, we live together and so we will end up dying together. 
But Paul knows the nature of Christian relationship is not merely based on common grace of human social effort. He knows our bond is founded in our death to self and our new life in Christ. So as Christ lives in us, so our relationships endure in him and his grace. So Paul's message here is the allegiance of the Christian life. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is this commitment, it's the commitment really, the loyalty is demonstrated in the divine love of God in Christ that is demonstrated to us in which we find the grace to be loyal to one another. It is God's loyalty to us in Christ that underpins the existence of us, not me, but we, together. It's the loyalty of grace. Jesus said in John 13, 1 to his disciples upon announcing, having recently announced his departure from them into heaven and they're in great turmoil, he says, don't forget I've loved you with an everlasting love and my commitment to you is to love you until the end of the age. In Christ, we love each other the same way. Right? We've died to self and therefore we will live with you. Since we've died to self because Christ has died for us, therefore our commitment is to live together with you. Right? For to me, to live is Christ. Right? And he goes on to say, Great is my boasting on your behalf. We know from earlier in chapter 2 that Titus brought a report to to Paul of great encouragement from the Corinthian people. They had received his severe letter very well. Because Paul assumed the faith of the church, they could and did receive the message of this difficult letter with grace, and they appropriated it as well. Therefore, this boasting Paul speaks of is expressed because he knew that the grace to save was also the powerful grace to change and to grow individual Christians and their relationships. This is why he defines his boasting as great. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Grace is greater than all the sin that adversely affects human relationships. It just has to be. Because it is. That's his very nature. Even the sin that results in broken relationships in our homes and in our churches. He says here, I'm filled with comfort. Paul's heart is comforted because he knew the comforter, the indwelling Holy Spirit, who was convincingly, convincingly working by grace in his heart and their hearts to bring their hearts together, both with God and man. So he's filled with comfort knowing from Titus's report, and it was good, that the Spirit of God was by his own nature as the comforter, comforting them back to this warm relationship. And he says here, I'm overflowing with joy in all of our affliction. I think this is a great couplet. Joy and affliction. 
Seems to be a theme of the Bible, doesn't it? Count it all joy when you fall into adverse trials and temptations. <laughs> right? Hebrews 12, for Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the affliction of the cross. It seems to be a refrain to the Christian existence. And Paul says here, even in human relationship, the adverse affliction that unbelief has brought to me from outside the church has not overwhelmed my ability by grace to be overflowing with joy towards you because you are responding to the ministry of an indwelling Holy Spirit in your heart and restoring your relationship with me. There is no affliction outside of us that will ever be greater than the Christ within us in developing and maintaining Christian relationship. It's another tremendous reminder to us, friends, that the operation of grace in the church among us is the overflowing of the joy of our hearts within us as we endure inevitable affliction without and for the Corinthian people affliction that had been caused by people who were professing believers in the church who weren't believers that were turning each other against themselves and themselves against Paul that's what unbelief loves to do don't ever forget that everyone just stop draw the circle around yourself and listen as if you're the only one in the room this morning unbelief by its nature in the church always will pursue the breakdown of Christian relationship that's just what it does doesn't matter how many times someone preaches Christ proclaims Christ speaks of Christ, witnesses for Christ, goes to church four services a week, gives, serves. That's all theater for unbelief. It's good theater for them. But unbelief will always seek to divide Christian relationships in the church. Grace always seeks to restore them. So, how critical it remains for us to appropriate saving grace to the maintenance of our relationships. That's the fervor. And it's the fervor of grace. And we conclude this morning with the function of Christian relationships in verses 5 through 7. You know, I've seen the deepest and the darkest realities of life influence the division among Christian relationships. As a child, and then into my teen and young adult life, as my soul was being grown by grace, I've often thought, wow, if that relationship continues, it must only be because God wants it to. As a pastor's kid for 47 years, and now a pastor for over 30 years, I can say really I've seen it all when it comes to Christian relationships. I've been an eyewitness to what sin and unbelief does to try to sever those relationships. 
I've seen it in my own home as a kid, and I've seen it among God's people too, not just in our church, so much earlier, not so much now, but also in others. When Christian relationships grow dysfunctional, it's because at least one person in the relationship has decided to no longer appropriate supernatural grace to their own life and to the life of that relationship. Now, we're all human. And we're always in relationships that fluctuate in their soundness from time to time. So we're reminded that the appropriation of grace is done with determination. And that determination is all underpinned by grace as well as to the function of Christian relationships. And it's all of grace. So what's the function? Well, what he's going to do here in verse 5 is going to take us back to chapter 2, okay? So go back with me here to chapter number 2, and let's look at verse 12 real quick, okay? They're reading this letter, having this letter read to them publicly, so there's an order here. They've already have had chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 read to them, and so when he's going to start writing here or having this read to them in verse number five, they're going to immediately know that he's referencing back to chapter 12. And you'll remember this if you were with us back at that time when we preached this. Now when I came to Troas, this is Paul, for the gospel of Christ, remember we were talking about gospel progress, when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, But taking my leave of them, I went to Macedonia. And that's where he met up with Titus. Do you remember in this immediate context of chapter 2, we were talking about the intentionality of gospel progress and that, that often when you're most intent on working together for gospel progress, you, uh, you can experience the greatest turmoil of soul. Remember we said that's what Paul was going through here? He wasn't distracted away from this open door for the gospel, okay? But he certainly was troubled in his soul while he was walking through this open door for the gospel in Troas because he had not seen Titus. And why did he want to see Titus? Because Titus was going to bear the report of how the Corinthians had responded to his first severe letter. And the agony of his soul was he was just left wondering how they were doing until he got that report. Now think about that. His agony of soul was wondering how they were doing in their walk with the Lord, which was directly tied to their relationship with him because he brought the message of the Lord to him. And then his agony of soul is even deeper because he's wondering, well, if they're not responding to the Lord's message, then they're still going to be at odds with me and certainly at odds with one another. And he goes, that's just not what God's grace does. God's grace reunites us with God and then to one another in Christ and God's grace underpins the function of these relationships. So the function of maintaining human relationship is the continuance, what we find here in verse number five, of ministry activity. Now we're talking about the function, not the foundation of the fervor, but the function. 
Paul gave to us in 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, even though he was in agony, he kept faithful to ministry. Always remember that. Even though he was in agony, he kept faithful by grace to gospel ministry. So what he's saying here to these people, even though now by now he's able to admit he'd received the report and it was really, really good, he's reminding these people that he never stopped ministering while he was waiting in agony of soul. And so he's telling them to remember that. That in any local church where there's relationship struggles, everyone assumes by God's grace that the relationship's going to be fixed so we keep ministering by grace. Does that make sense? This is just not a knee-jerk reaction. This is a natural, supernatural reality. Because we're all assuming everyone's in Christ. We've already stated that this morning. I'll condemn nobody. And so we're always going to assume that everybody's indwelled by the Spirit of God. And we always know that the grace of God through the Spirit of God is working on everyone's individual soul to make sure that we're relating rightly with Christ and with one another. So assuming all those things that God's doing, this is what by His grace I'm going to do. And I'm going to continue to do it as these things are worked out. Verse 5, for even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without fears within. That was the reality. There it is. Then what does he say? There's a big time adversative coming up here. Why were we able to continue? But God. That's a big deal. (laughs) But God, who comforts the depressed. This is how we continue to persevere. Consider the persons set opposite one another, just in this phrase, commenced by the adversative but. God and the depressed. Consider one is unchanging, and consider that the other, you and me, are always being grown by grace towards Christ-likeness. That's just the reality of the human condition in any local church. One person never struggles with who he is because he's self-defined and self-authenticating. He's God. And there's always us who may consistently struggle with who we are and why we're here and where we're going and what we're doing in life, but God. who comforts us who are depressed, by his grace, keeps our feet pointed in the direction of gospel progress. As we maintenance, we work hard at maintaining our relationship with God and with each other. Because remember, it's never just about maintaining our relationship. The relationships are maintained by grace so the gospel of grace together can go forward. He comforts. The first and primary function of grace is the restoration and the develop of human Christian relationships. It is the function of God's work in us as we devote ourselves to him and to his cause. And it's all by his grace. Boy, that kind of 
you want to cross-reference in your margin of your Bible back where we first began in March, studying this book at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were discovering again the comfort of the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Remember, he's the God of all kinds of comfort. Right? And we are to comfort one another as he has comforted us. Remember that? Paul's just saying here, but God who comforts the depressed, which was me, Paul's saying. I was greatly grieved of soul, right? But God comforted me by the indwelling of his spirit with only comfort he could give to me, and now you are comforting me. But God comforts, and that he compels by grace his people to take that same comfort that they're experiencing in the in the the restoration of their relationships with each other, okay, to share with others who are struggling in their relationships. So as the Corinthians progress in the public hearing of this letter read, they're now able to listen to the word comfort here and associate it back to what we've already discussed. It is God and his grace that compels us to persevere in Christian relationships. And it's he who comforts us unto that end. And there's no qualifiers here. There's no one standing up in the audience and saying in Corinth, but you don't know my wife. Right? There's no one standing up in the audience saying, but you don't know my husband. There's no one standing up in the audience in teenagehood saying, dude, you don't know my dad. You don't know my mom. Because if husband and wife, mother, father, son, daughter are all children of God, guess what grace compels them to do. Utilize the comfort of God to restore that relationship. Why? Because the spread of the gospel is worth it. And if someone stomps on the ground and says, I won't, it's because of them that I won't. It's never because of them. It's because of you. And I love y'all. There's a couple who refuse to even look at me when I say that because you know that's you. That's what unbelief does. Unbelief says, I can't because they won't, or I won't because they can't. That's not what grace does. Grace always leaves the door open and craves restoration. It just does. It just does. Okay? Sometimes I don't like being a shepherd. Because a shepherd has to carry a staff. And that staff has two ends. And I love one of the ends of that staff more than I love the other.
Because ultimately, if there's a refusal to restoration, you're really blaming the failure of the restoration on God. Think about it. If you're going to follow the logic all the way through, what you're saying is God can't do this. And he can. The majority of Christian relationships are healed in grace. You all know that there's just a couple times in the New Testament where relationships are severed. And they're inevitably severed. And God even gives license to one of them in Matthew 19, right? That's a husband and wife splitting up because of the act of adultery in one of their parts. And the other one's in 1 Corinthians 7 in a marital context again where God says if the unbelieving person who does, has never had grace operating in their life departs, you're supposed to let them. But folks, that's two. Both in a marriage context. Every other relationship where two people call themselves Christian is underpinned by grace under the restoration of that relationship. And if two people who are spirit, say they're spirit-filled, born-again people and governing their lives, operating by grace, and there's not an unbeliever in the midst that departs, or there's not sexual immorality in the context of a marriage, and there's still no restoration, my friend, someone's in unbelief. Someone has to be unbelief even though they preach Christ and can write a testimony. Somewhere in the world, they prayed a prayer, but their life was never transformed. They can quote the Pentateuch by heart. But if they're not able, it's not that they can't, or they won't, they can't. They're unable to take grace and benefit it under the relationship, development and restoration of another believer. There has to be unbelief somewhere. There just has to be. You say, oh, you've got a pastor's heart. Pastors always hurt when their sheep hurt, and pastors always want everyone just to get along, and pastors just like to peace be still, you know? Everyone just be good with each other, right? Come on, people. Life's too short. That's just your pastor-teacher gift, Pastor Tim. Well, the Apostle Paul's not directly addressing pastors in this context. So apparently, God's grace develops the same desire in all of our hearts if we're spirit-filled. Eternity's a long time. For like I said earlier, for a handful of you, eternity's a long time. And I do say this as a soul, as a shepherd. You can do a lot of things in Jesus' name and face him and he can say, depart from me, I never knew you. You worker of iniquity. Because in the simple but supernatural ability to take God's grace that saved you and appropriate it to relationship, you could not do it. So you can do 99 things in Jesus' name and can't do one 
if you're saved, confess, forsake, repent, and restore. But you may need to be born again. Because my friend, if Jesus could leave heaven's realm and condescend to the earth to die for your sin-sick soul, you can certainly be restored to the other sin-sick soul who's closest to you, all by his grace. Because remember, we're all individually the chiefest of sinners. It is God and his grace that compels us to persevere in Christian relationships. And it's he who comforts us to do the same. So in addition to his divine help, he adds some personal help. He says, we were comforted by us. I was comforted by the coming of Titus. He goes on to say, by adding the comfort of the Corinthian people to Titus, which became the source of encouragement to Paul. He says here, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. So isn't it wonderful how God's grace just, as, as if he had to, but he didn't have to, but he did. His supernatural grace is powerful enough, right? We forgive those before they even ask for forgiveness. I mean, that's just grace, right? It's powerful to save us. He's powerful to restore us just by himself, just us and him. And then we with each other. But then he decided by his grace to gift us with each other to help us unto that end of maintenancing those relationships. And that's good. Titus was good for Paul. The people of Corinth were good for Titus. And so they were all good together. Reminds me of the Apostle John stating of those house churches he wrote to, I have no greater joy in all the earth than to know my children are, are growing in truth, all by God's grace, right? So, all of a sudden, all by God's grace, these Corinthian people that had been taught by unbelief, the Corinthian people who were truly saved, who were taught by unbelief that they could separate their relationship with Paul and actually begin to hate him because he was corrupting them. He was taking advantage of them. All of a sudden, here's these people who are proving they were really saved after all. And what are they doing? They're longing for Paul. To be reconciled to Paul. They're mourning. They began to feel horribly over their disloyalty to God and his cause. And looking around the relationships they had ruined as they got lost their focus on their Loyalty to God and his cause of the gospel in Christ. He says, wow, you have zeal for me. There's an ardent concern to not just want to be with me and love me, but defend the very cause for which I've been saved. That's what this means in this short phrase. Your zeal for me. It's not just for my person, but it's for the cause that I've been called to. They're rejoining him in the spread of the gospel. Disjointed relationships set aside. People are united. Wow, what can the Spirit of God do with united people for gospel purposes? 
Right? Praise God. But my friends, in all three of these expression of function on a practical level, your longing, your mourning, your zeal, underpinning all of these three phrases is our English word loyalty. And my friends, loyalty in this context is a good loyalty. Right? Being dismissed from our culture at every layer of our culture is loyalty, exclusive loyalty unto good and moral things. <laughs> but God's grace is always underpinning human relationships to together pursue good and moral things. And in this context, the gospel, the spread of the gospel. Okay. So as we said last week, from my friend, I quoted him, the Christ the crisis before us will never be greater than the Christ within us. Particular application to this context, the Christ within us will always help us restore the crisis of our relationships in front of us. Else it's not God's grace. It's not God's grace, okay? To the overwhelming majority of the saints at Grace Church of Mentor, keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. Very, very, very minuscule part of you. Please get right with God because I want you to know the joy of his grace. Joy. The joy of his grace. Joy in the midst of affliction. Okay? All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for just in your sovereign will allowing the Holy Spirit to influence Paul to take this little parenthesis of practical help. And yet, Lord, while there's not much deep doctrine immediately spoken of, we know the practical ability to do this relationship, restoration, and development is really all underpinned by the doctrine of your grace. Help me, Lord, the, the worst sinner in the room by far, to be able to continually know your grace and its ability to love my wife, maintain relationships, and love my children, and to love my flock to the person. And may we love one another together because we've been loved by God in Christ unto that which God loves, which is the spread of the fame of his son's name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.